acknowledgement uh, and of those the most important occasionally from time to time it's very very seldom uh, a text is a little problematic and difficult and I will turn some outside help and uh, I often read other books but I almost never listen to other sermons for help and this week I did so and so uh, some of the thoughts and applications of this sermon are uh, due to a pastor former RUF pastor named Brian Habig and I just want to give acknowledgement right here at the beginning that uh, Mr. Habig was very helpful as I thought through this text and prepared tonight. So let's jump in. This semester we are studying a section of John's Gospels that's often called the Upper Room Discourse or the Farewell Discourse. He's preparing his followers for his departure. And uh, that means his death and what life will be like for them once he leaves. And over the last couple of weeks he's made it really clear that that his leaving still involves his presence, that, the, that he and the Father and the Spirit are going to make a, a home with his disciples, his followers, that they will be present in a loving family home. And that's great. But as we, as we look at the text this week, what we discover is uh, that really, really important real estate principle. Location, location, location. That he is making a loving home, but man, what a neighborhood. When you get to know the neighbors, it's, you, maybe, maybe maybe you don't want to live in this home. He's establishing this loving home in a really, really hard place. So I'm going to read our text. It's part of chapter 15, going into 16. I'll pray, and then we'll talk about it some. So chapter 15, starting in verse 18. If the world hates you, know it's hated me before it hates you. If you were of the world, the world would love you as its own. But because you're not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. Remember the word that I said to you, that a servant's not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will persecute you. If they kept my word, they'll keep yours also. But all these things they will do to you on account of my name, because they do not know him who sent me. If I had not come and spoken to them, they would not have been guilty of sin. But now they have no excuse for their sin. Whoever hates me hates my father also. If I had not done among them the works that no one else did, they would not be guilty of sin. But now they have seen and hated both me and my father. But the word that's written in their law must be fulfilled. They hated me without cause. But when the Helper comes, whom I will send to you from the Father, the Spirit of truth, who proceeds from the Father, he will bear witness about me. And you also will bear witness, because you've been with me from the beginning." I've said all these things to you to keep you from falling away. They will put you out of the synagogues. Indeed, the hour is coming when whoever kills you will think he's offering service to God. They will do these things because they have not known the Father nor me. But I've said these things to you that when their hour comes, you may remember that I told them to you. I did not say these things to you from the beginning because I was with you. But now I'm going to him who sent me. And none of you ask, where are you going? But because I've said these things to you, your sorrow has filled your heart. Nevertheless, I tell you the truth. It's to your advantage that I go away. For if I do not go away, the Helper will not come to you. But if I go, I will send him to you. And when he comes, he will convict the world concerning sin and righteousness and judgment. Concerning sin, because they do not believe in me. Concerning righteousness, because I go to the Father. And you will see me no longer. Concerning judgment, because the ruler of this world is judged. All right, I'm going to pray for you to join me. Uh, Great Father, we come to you asking for your help tonight. We need it because it's the end of the week and we're tired. Uh, 
We need it because we're easily distracted by all the things we have to do. We need it, Lord, because there's all kinds of things going on in our hearts. Some of them hard, some of them uh, just attractive and tempting. And uh, we need it, Lord, because this is a hard text uh, with hard words. So would you be kind, Lord, to, to show us what you need to show us and to show us your goodness as well. Uh, be with me in my weakness. Grant me clarity of thought and speech. I ask these things in your name, Lord Jesus. Amen. Uh, about 20 years ago, there was this wonderful movie called Life is Beautiful that came out. It's Academy Award winner. Anyone seen that movie? All the old people. Oh, yes. Well, she's old, too. <laughs> she just looks young. It's a, it's a beautiful movie that won numerous awards. It's been called a comedy drama. It's really hard to do both of those at the same time, and this movie does. Um, it's set in 1939. It centers around a young man named Guido. He's a young Italian Jewish man. He moves to town, and that's a Jewish man who lives in Italy. Okay. Uh, he moves to town where his, his uncle runs a restaurant, takes up the family business. Soon uh, falls deeply in love with this beautiful young woman named Dora. She unfortunately is engaged to someone else. So he sets about stealing her heart and succeeds. He's incredibly brilliant and uh, very funny and steals her heart. And after he's done that, he goes and steals her, actually. He literally rides up on a horse to her engagement party to this other guy and steals her. And she, of course, is fine with that, actually, because she loves him anyway. And they get married. They have a son. It's a happy, beautiful family. Uh, in fact, uh, you have this beautiful moment uh, where they're celebrating their son's birthday. And, and that's when reality comes crashing in. It's 1939 Italy. And uh, the Nazis and the fascists are moving in. And Jews are being rounded up and put on trains and shipped to internment camps. And that's what happens. He and his family are arrested and put on trains and taken to Auschwitz or somewhere like it. And, uh, and this is where this movie is different than a lot of Holocaust movies. There's, there is great suffering and great evil as existed in all these places. But what happens here is uh, in this movie, uh, Guido goes out of his way to protect his young son from the horrible realities of what's going on there. And he does it by convincing his son, who's like six or seven years old, that this is all a big game. That the concentration camp's a big game. And that if you just keep the rules right, you'll win. The first person to get a thousand points wins a tank. And so you win points by being quiet and not complaining about wanting to see your mom or not complaining about the food. And you get extra points for hiding well from the guards. And uh, you lose points for crying. And uh, his son's a little suspicious, but over time his dad, again, is a comedic genius, very smart. He convinces his son this is a game. And in this way, he protects his son from the harsh reality of where they are. Now, I watched that movie, and uh, it's a brilliant movie. It deserves every award it won. It actually presented all the horrible evils of the Holocaust. Uh, and yet, I, I really struggled with this father's choice. What do you do in that situation? Do you constantly perpetrate a lie, which is what he did, in order to protect his son? I mean, he lied to his son a thousand times over. To protect his son from that harsh reality. Or do you tell him the truth? about the world and, and crush all his hopes. It's a horrible choice to have to make, right? 
Well, in some ways, Jesus is in a very similar position to that in this text. He knows exactly what's about to happen. He's already, up to this point of three chapters, told his followers a bunch of terrible, horrible things. I'm going to die. I'm going to be crucified by one of you who's going to betray me. Oh, and you're going to deny me, and the rest of you are going to abandon me. That's enough bad news for one night, right? Uh, But here, he has to tell them what's going to happen. I'm going to go away. I'm going to come back. There's lots of promises. Oh, but by the way... Uh, even though I'll be with you in this world and you'll have a loving family, you need to know that the world's going to hate you. That's exactly the news he has to share. That this loving family that he's going to establish on earth, this little home he's going to make, it's going to be in the neighborhood of a world that really despises them, hates them, wants to persecute them. And you can imagine Jesus wanting to withhold this information. Because there's been enough bad news tonight, frankly. But he, he tells them. He tells them because he wants them to know. He tells them, chapter 16 tells us, because he does not want them to be surprised when it happens. That when persecution comes, they won't be surprised and fall away. No, he doesn't just want them to hang on. He wants them to know what kind of world they live in so they can respond appropriately. And so we're going to see tonight that uh, these followers of Jesus in the text and us followers of Jesus, we're at home in a hostile world and we're called to speak words of love to it. That us, that us as followers of Jesus, if that's you, we're at home in this hostile world and we're called to speak words of love to it. So tonight we're talking about world, the world of hate and uh, words of love. And let me take a time out right here as we get started. This is like calling a time out two minutes into the first quarter of the football game. Stupid coach. Um, we're calling a time out here because I don't want you to hear what I'm not saying. Um, first of all, by, by choosing uh, the title... Uh, the, the world of hate I am not saying I hate the world okay I don't hate the world I like, I like it here um, secondly I'm not saying the world is as bad and hateful as it could be trust me the world is bad there's lots of terrible horrible things that go on but the world's also beautiful and it's not as bad as it could be third this is not an angry old man us versus them speech there's going to be none of that uh, fourth, this is not me in any way prescribing hate. If you get that from tonight, either I've got a terrible speech problem, or you've got a horrible hearing problem, and we need to clarify that afterwards. So if you hear me saying, like, you should go out and hate something, um, you should come talk to me. Let's make sure we're clear. All right. Well, instead, what we're doing right here is describing and explaining a consistent, observable reality that for some reason... What Jesus here describes as the world consistently hates God, Jesus, and his people. That's the simple point that Jesus is making in these texts. And uh, he, he introduces it in verse 18, right on the heels of this beautiful section in chapter 15, where he says basically, hey, if you're in me, I and the Father are going to love you like the Father loves me. Man, it does not get any more loving than that. I will love you like the Father loves me. Sweet, deep, beautiful love. Verse 18. By the worry, the, uh, the world's going to hate you. Oh, that's a sharp contrast. And um, he, he introduces us here to this reality that if the world hates them, it's because it first hated him. Verse 18. If the world hates you, know it hated me before it hated you. Jesus here is saying, listen, in this case, it's not you. It's me. In other words, Gandhi, you're wrong. Um, he's throwing shade at Gandhi. 
1900 years ahead of time. You've heard this quote from Gandhi probably. People love to do this. Gandhi said, I've read about Christ. I like your Christ. I don't like your Christians. And uh, we'll come back to that in a moment. But Jesus is here saying, hey, if people really, really, if you're in Jesus and people really, really don't like you, it's probably not you. It's me. They hate me. And he goes on to explain why that's the case. So listen carefully. First of all, he describes an ancient animosity. This thing goes back further than just you guys. Um, he's, you're stepping into it, this deep-rooted hatred. Um, and, and basically, uh, what we're going to see explained in this text goes all the way back to the very beginning of the Bible. In fact, if we had time, I'd just read the whole thing right now, but we don't. Beginning Genesis, hostility between the devil and mankind. And the end of the Bible, hostility, again, between the devil and mankind. And in the playground of their war is the hearts of men and women. And in chapter 2 and 3, we see uh, this enmity, this hostility breaking out in, in the first family, where basically they decide, you know what, God, we don't trust you anymore. We don't trust you anymore. And uh, we don't really, really want to love you or live under you anymore. So here's the deal. We're going we're gonna to be our own God from now on. I'm going to establish and decide what's right and wrong for me. I'm going to do what I want. And from that, from that moment on, all of us as humans have basically believed this, that I have the right to do what I want. I don't answer to anyone. I'm in charge. I decide what's right and wrong. If I need to, I'll forgive myself. And uh, if anything goes bad in the world or my life, I'll probably blame God for it. But he's supposed to help me out. So there's this deep-rooted animosity that exists in, in our hearts toward God. And it's been that way. And uh, I'm going to describe that as a family feud, okay? That the family of mankind has been feuding with the family of God, Father, Son, and Spirit, since the beginning. And it continues. Now, the question then is, what's this guy do with me? If you and me are Christians, or we're these disciples, and Jesus says, hey, the world's going to hate you, then you may want to say, like, well, why? 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 What's this got to do with me? Like, this is your fight. What's this got to do with me? And, and Jesus here in the middle of this text explains, and uh, it's, it's a bit of a thick explanation, so hang on. It'll make sense. Jesus in verse 21 says, They don't know who sent me, the Father. So they, they hate me. They don't know that God the Father has sent me. So in the midst of this ancient long-standing feud between humanity and God, God does what? Gives up and crushes them? No. He sends His Son to them to show them His love and to show them what He's like. They don't know who God is, so what do they do? They hate Jesus. And in verses 22 to 24, through this whole thing, Jesus is explaining what happens. He says, If I had not come and spoken to them, they would not have been guilty of sin. Now they have no excuse. Um... For there is sin, whoever hates me hates my Father. If I had not done among them the works that no one else did, they would not be guilty of sin. Now they've seen and hated both me and my Father. It's a very interesting text. And I don't think Jesus is saying, if I hadn't come, they wouldn't have been guilty at all. No, what he's saying is, they were already guilty. But I came to show them their sin, and I came to show them God's love, and I came to show them the remedy, and they completely and utterly rejected me. I gave them my words, and I gave them my works. I told them, and I showed them, and they rejected me. So they are now completely without excuse. No excuse whatsoever. And uh, in verse 24, he says, Look, they've, seen, they've now seen me and the Father up close in the flesh and rejected me. Now, what's that got to do with you? 
Well, this is a family feud. They rejected the family of God. They rejected Jesus and the Father. And Jesus is saying in verse 18 and 19, Hey, listen, you used to be part of the world, but you're not anymore. I chose you out of it. You know who you are now? You're part of my family. You're part of this family. You've switched sides. You're on the other side of the feud now. And that's good news. But here's the bad news. Now that you're on the side of the, of the feud, you know what you are? You're also a target. You have the family ties of the Father. You're going to start looking, smelling, and acting like God the Father. And, and the world is going to hate it. They're going to hate it because they hate me. So, how serious is this feud? And the answer is, uh, as we would say in the South, serious as a heart attack. Um, I don't, it doesn't make any sense to me uh, why we say that. The, the South is full of stupid expressions. Anyway, um, uh, Jesus is saying here, well, listen, consider how they treated me. In verse 25, they hated me without cause. This is really interesting text back in John chapter 10. Where uh, in verse 30, I think it is, they, they pick up stones to stone him. They're going to kill him. And Jesus, I love this verse, sarcastically replies, For which of the good works that I did are you going to kill me? At this point in Jesus' ministry, he has gone from village to village, healed their sick, healed their lame, eradicated disease, preached good news openly in the synagogues during the day and in the temple. And he's asking, For which of the good works from the Father are you going to kill me? I've, I've come and done nothing but bless you. Oh yeah, I've challenged you, but I've blessed you. For which of these are you going to kill me? And Jesus is saying, there and here, your hatred to me is unreasonable. It is without cause. It is a baseless hatred. And they hate him so much, they want to kill him in chapter 10. And by the time we read this text right here, they're going to. In just a few hours. The plan's already happening. It's unfolding. Judas is on the way. They're going to arrest him. and Within 24 hours, he's going to be in a tomb. And he goes on to say in chapter 16, verse 2, Listen, if they treat me that way, they're going to treat you the same way. Chapter 16, verse 2, The hour is coming when whoever kills you will think he's doing God a favor. Making an offering. So, what you need to know is that the the unreasonable hostility of the world to people that love Jesus is real. And, uh, and I think it's just an observable reality throughout history. I'll just give you a, a picture of that from someone outside of the camp, outside of my camp. Okay, uh, Ira Glass, the host, creator of This American Life, fantastic podcast. If you haven't listened to it, you should. You'll learn something every single time you listen. He's fantastic. Over the many years the show has run, he's often done segments on Christians. Uh, Ira Glass is not a Christian. He's a secular Jew, very thoughtful. And uh, he's on an interview or two where he's asked about his relationship to Christians and how he often gives them a sympathetic portrait in his episodes. And in one particular one, uh, someone asked him, why do you do this? And he, he basically says this. I'm quoting him. I feel like, and he's a secular Jew, I feel like Christians are really horribly covered by the media. This is not me telling you to listen to Fox News. I am not doing that right now. I'm just simply quoting Ira Glass. I feel like they are horribly covered by the media. I think they're a really ripe target. And the uh, interviewer says, don't you think they deserve it based on their political views, based on their public stances? And Ira Glass says, no. I just want to acknowledge their bad treatment. And the reality is, whenever I come across them portrayed in the media, they're usually portrayed as crazy, hot-headed, doctrinaire people 
But in reality, all the Christians in my life are wonderful, thoughtful, generally generous-hearted people. And this, again, is someone who's not a believer just saying, it, it doesn't make sense. The level of vitriol I see toward these people doesn't make sense. Now, you may not see that, but you will. And uh, if you didn't live here, you'd see it even more clearly. I want to stop right now and call a timeout and acknowledge that not all, histi- not all hostility toward God's people, towards Jesus' people, is unreasonable. Much of it re- is unreasonable because it's toward Jesus and it's just this deep-rooted animosity. But uh, some of the hostility is quite deserved because of things the church or Christians have done in the past or in the present, failures of omission, things we should have done that we didn't, things that we're doing that we shouldn't. I want to acknowledge that's the reality. And so if you've been hurt by a Christian or in your family or someone in your church, I am not saying that that was justifiable. It certainly was not. I'm sorry. Um, secondly, I want to call a second time out, run on the heels of that first one, and say, this is not me spinning a us-versus-them narrative, that we Christians, poor Christians here in the world, are being persecuted by the mean, nasty people outside, those nasty, irreligious people out there. The reality actually is far more complicated than that. And uh, as you read through the text, what you'll see is this, this uh, strange thing happens where Jesus goes from describing the, uh, the world to talking about they. They will persecute you. They'll throw you out of the synagogues. And the question is, who, who are they? Who are they? Who are these people that, are, that will delight in killing you? And uh, you might think, oh, like those bloodthirsty barbarians, maybe? Or uh, power-hungry Romans who will just do everything they can to keep their power? Uh, no. In fact, the people that he's talking about here are sensible, peaceable, uh, people that believe in one God, who read their Bible, who went to synagogue regularly, and love their families. Um, and this is not John being anti-Jewish. Um, he's been accused of that. The reality is, by the end of the first century, Jews, pagan Greeks, and Romans will, will all hate the church and persecute it. But I, I think he's pointing out, and I want to point out the reality, that the world runs far more across the religious lines than we think. We tend to think all the religious nice people over here and the mean, nasty world out there. And that is simply not the case. And I think you know it. So um, I, I think if I said, look, think through your past, think through your church experience, or even think through something you've seen on TV, can you think of anyone from some church that just seems like really angry all the time, full of hate, just an angry, hateful person? Can anyone not think of someone like that? I thought so. Um, and, and for some people, that's your only thought or experience of what people in the church might be like. Um, I think we just have to admit the reality that there's a whole lot of religious people in the world and in our churches who are full of hate. They just are. They're full of hate. And some of you, and a lot of people out there, would nod their heads and say, Amen, we just need to choose to love one another. And it's not that easy. Because the hatred is much deeper than you think. It's not just that we don't love people. It's that, it's that we actually hate Jesus. We hate God. And, and the problem goes so deep that it bleeds out of even us sometimes. Us that are a part of the family. Us that know Jesus. Um, 
If you've ever been in a conversation with uh, others in a group in RUF, and it began to get heated, and I completely shut that thing down, um, it's because I'm watching out for what I call friendly fire. That in a hostile world, where it's easy for us to think, like, the enemy's out there, and they're going to come and get us, so let's just take care of each other. No, sometimes we act like the other person right across the, the, the table from us is the enemy. And we can hurt each other. We can easily fall into it, especially today in our culture. It's us versus them. And I'm on the right side and they're on the wrong side. The real problem of the world is those people. Those people that think that way. Those people that do that. And if they would, if they would just change, if they would just read, if they would just talk to someone not like them, if they would just meet someone who was black, if they would just talk to some gay person, if they would do, get out of themselves, the world would be so much better. It's easy to fall into this us versus them mindset. And then we begin to shoot each other. Friendly fire. That's what I call it. So, if you ever see me shut it down, a conversation, it's because I'm pretty convinced now that one of you is like the enemy of the world. It's not because I don't like your view. It's because I think you actually love Jesus deep in your heart, but you're treating each other like the enemy. And you're hurting each other. And I don't want you to do it. Does that make sense? I don't think we're supposed to act that way. Uh, We're on the same side. But those speeches are very telling. They show us what's in our heart. And they show us that there may be more of us in the world and more of the world in us than we would like to know. And uh, I think it shows us how complex this is, that this hostility in the world, it can be out there among the non-religious, it can be right in here with the religious, it can be even in our own hearts sometimes. And uh, it's partly because Jesus offends everybody. He really is. To the non-religious, he tells them, you can't live that way. You can't do that. And to the religious, he tells them, I'm sorry, but you can't save yourself. Like, you need me. And he offends everyone. Lastly, you need to know that uh, in this hostile environment, you can't choose to be Switzerland. You You don't get to be neutral. Jesus says in verse 20, Hey, remember, I told you the servant's not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they're going to persecute you. And I know it's possible for some of us, especially you really smart, socially adaptable, nice people, to think, if I'm just nice enough and smart enough and woke enough, I can navigate the waters. I can do it. I can navigate the waters and everyone will like me. But uh, Jesus here says, if they persecute me, they're going to persecute you. And here I will quote Brian Habig. Habig said, Hey, if Jesus says this, if they persecuted me, they're going to persecute you. Either Jesus is right or you're right. You can't both be right. Chances are you're wrong. You, you cannot be loyal to Him consistently and love Him and escape. And I know some of you want more than anything to be loved and accepted by everyone. And the thought of being disliked kills you. And I know some of you want to be respected and thought smart and cultured more than anything. And the thought of being disrespected or disregarded kills you. And I know some of you, maybe some of you new students here in this environment for the first time, are wondering, like, whoa, what do I do with this? I've got teachers that, whose respect I want who think Christians are stupid. And I've got peers whose friendship I want who think 
that people like me that don't do these things, that don't, don't abide by the normal Thursday through Saturday or Sunday or maybe Wednesday through Saturday, a socially acceptable expected behaviors, they're, uh, they're just going to shun me and leave me behind. It's in this kind of environment that lots of students, and this is not like living in the Middle East persecution, but it can hurt. And it can hurt enough where some of you say, you know what? I'm just going to do what they want me to do. Or you know what? Maybe I will just hang this Christian stuff up this year or while I'm in school and take it back up when I'm done in four years. Take a little four-year time out. Because this is too hard and it hurts too much. And, and here it's really important for us to see what Jesus says here. Don't be surprised. They're treating me the same way. I am why they're treating you this way. I told you that this would happen. You're not losing. This is not part of a losing cause. And you have a job to do. I failed to mention, by the way, that this sermon has one really long one point and one really short second point. Really short second point. Okay. Uh, in a world of hostility, of hatred, we're called to speak words of love. A reasonable response to this, think about this, animosity for ages. God sends his son, okay? They kill his son. What would you expect God to do? Anybody? Crush them? I mean, that's... If you killed my son, I'm going to crush you. Instead, Jesus says in verse 26... Uh, when the Helper comes, whom I will send to you from the Father, the Spirit of Truth who proceeds from the Father, he will bear witness. In other words, I can imagine the disciples saying, wait, after they kill you, you're going to still keep trying? Uh, yes. But they, but they killed you. Yeah, I know. I'm going to come and talk to them about it. I mean, that's exactly, that's exactly what he's saying. Yeah, I'm going to send the Holy Spirit to come, and I'm going to talk to them about it. How they killed me. Um, it's pretty amazing. This is how much the Father loves the world. That he would send his Son and his Spirit to keep trying to get through to a world that hates him, that he loves them. And so, and we're just going to do this very briefly, because I'm just getting later. Jesus uh, promises the Spirit will come, and when the Spirit comes, verse 26, he will bear witness about me. The Holy Spirit has two jobs that it does in this text. Uh, one is he, spines a sh- uh, he shines a spotlight on Jesus. He testifies to Jesus. Martin Luther put it this way. The poor Holy Spirit, he only has one subject. In other words, he just constantly is out to show off Jesus. But the second thing he does by showing off Jesus is he criticizes the world. By showing off Jesus, he shows the world what it's really like. The Holy Spirit acts like that crazy blue flashlight in all those crime scene shows. The light's on, the room looks normal. Light goes off, shine around, ooh, I'm never, ever, ever sleeping in a hotel room again. You know what I'm talking about? To turn it off, pull down the blue light. Should throw that bitch sheet away. And the murder was over there. Um, so, yes, uh, Holy Spirit comes and shines in this light and exposes the hearts of mankind. It exposes sin and righteousness and judgment. This is verses 8 through 11. He shows us our sin. He shows us that we refuse to trust Jesus, to admit that our need is so great that, that God would have to come in the flesh and die for us. That's what He's out to convince us. He shows us that our righteousness... He convinces us that our righteousness is just a bunch of empty rule-keeping. 
that it's possible for us to be like some of these rule-keeping people in this text. They're going to kill Jesus and think they're doing God a favor. We can do horrible, terrible things and think it's okay because our sense of righteousness is very perverted. Or we can do all kinds of really good things and all kinds of bad things and think the the good things make up for it. We have a very skewed sense of what righteousness really is. And the Holy Spirit will show us what righteousness really is. And uh, in judgment, too, the Holy Spirit will show us that our judgment is wicked. It's wrong. Uh, We thought, they thought it was right to kill Jesus. He was the most innocent man ever. He was innocent. We thought it was a good idea. We should kill him. And, uh, and then when Jesus rises from the dead, it becomes really clear, like, we've made a terrible mistake. And, and he's the judge. And he has the right to judge us. This is what's really important. He tells us, these words of love will come by the Spirit through your mouths. That we're called to be witnesses too. You also will bear witness. Verse 27. Hey, in a world of hatred that's willing to kill Jesus, how do you bear words of love? When they're going to hate you too. How do you do that? You absolutely cannot do that. Words of love to a world that doesn't like you very much. Unless you go through the process of being deeply grieved by the Spirit. Unless the Spirit shines that light in your own heart. And shows you all that stuff. Because you, just like the people in this text, you're you're by nature are prone to thinking, the real problem in the world and in my life is out there. Those people would change. These circumstances would change. God would just get on my agenda. It would all be fine. And that's not the reality. Years and years ago, there was this uh, newspaper uh, essay. basically invited all the great thinkers in London and England to answer the question, what's wrong with the world? And lots of people wrote in pages and pages of stuff. And G.K. Chesterton wrote in just a letter that said, Dear Sirs, I am G.K. Chesterton. Unless you come to the point where you realize the greatest problem in the world, in the world that you know, is not them out there, but you. Your own sin, your own false sense of righteousness, your own so darn sure you're right judgment all the time. Unless you're deeply convicted that there's something really wrong in here. And when I all add it all up, I don't love God. I don't love others. I'm just a hateful human being. Then until you come to that point, you don't have anything to offer the world. Not words of love. Some of you have grown up in a culture in the church where you've been raised to be warrior children. You expect the us versus them, and so you've come to school with your battle axe. And uh, and you're going to take some heads, and you're going to win some arguments. But do you love these people? You're not going to convince anyone of anything. It's just going to be sparks and flames and fires, and and are they going to learn the love of Jesus from you? The words of love come when you realize how deeply you need Jesus and how he meets that need. And that love becomes genuine in your own heart so that you can share it with others. Friends, I, that was me. That was my story. I was that self-righteous jerk that thought I was part of the answer. The problem is out there. And man, I hated people. I didn't even try. It was just natural because I was right and they were wrong. And hate was easy, and it just was natural. And God showed me myself and my need, and and broke me. That was a very not fun time, having that blue light flashed around and seeing all that nasty stuff, and seeing my need. But I'll tell you what, once I figured it out, and Jesus showed me himself and myself, you know what began to happen? I actually began to love people. Like, really love them. 
And I had something to give them. Friends, that's, that's where I want to finish tonight. That's how much God is devoted to His people and to this world. He keeps on coming. To a world that was deep in hatred toward him, he sends his son. When they kill him, he's like, okay, we'll send the spirit and we'll keep working. And we'll transform the hearts of people and they will share his love. There's reason to be hopeful, friends. You can stand up. You can share your faith. You can do it with words of love. uh, And you can do it even in the midst of a hostile world. Because God loves. He loves you. He loves others. And he wants to use you.